and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about sanctions as a foreign policy tool. We discuss the effectiveness of this instrument and also the humanitarian impact of sanctions on sanctioned countries. My guest today is Erika Moret, a senior researcher at the Center for Global Governance and a visiting lecturer at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. She is a former European diplomat and a leading expert on sanctions. Erika, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Let's uh, talk about sanctions right now in the context of coronavirus. The world has been dealing with this pandemic for almost a year now, and we know certain countries have a harder time dealing with it, including Iran, because they're also dealing with this extra layer of difficulty, which is sanctions. Talk about how... Um, sanctions in this era have impacted countries um, such as Iran, and I'm sure there's a few others, not so many, but in the context of Iran, if you can speak of the impact of sanctions on the coronavirus. Sure. Since the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen the impacts of sanctions, but also wider regulations such as counterterrorism measures and anti-money laundering regulations. Uh, having a more notable impact on a number of countries. And there's a number of reasons for this. So first of all, if we think about some countries like Iran, but also a number of others around the world that have been living for a number of years under a series of multiple overlapping sanctions regimes. This means that the compliance environment, that's to say the the need for companies, but also NGOs and other non-for-profit uh, organizations to adhere to these sanctions and wider measures um, is a very complicated environment. It's, it's very expensive, it's very confusing and time-consuming for these various organizations and companies to work out what they can and can't do in light of the various sanctions that are in place. So as a consequence, there is now a global phenomenon which is known as financial sector de-risking or the chilling effect, which also refers to, for example, medical and food companies and humanitarian mm. organizations. And these, uh, and this, this basically means there's a, there's a mounting reluctance to deal with countries under multiple sanctions regimes like Iran. Then you also have a secondary problem, which is that because of the many years of sanctions that have been in place, and also because of other factors, of course, in many countries like corruption, economic mismanagement, and so on, the healthcare systems of certain countries under sanctions are already uh, uh, in a very fragile state, if not at kind of breaking point. Now, of course, with the case of Iran, this isn't such... Um, such a bad problem as in the cases of, for example, Syria and Venezuela, uh, because, of course, Iran already had a very um, advanced healthcare system and it's an advanced economy in comparison to some of the other countries we're thinking about. But uh, nevertheless, the Iranian healthcare system under sanctions has been under a great deal of pressure for many years now. And so the added layer of coronavirus um, and the pandemic in general has has meant uh, a number of problems have now been created, which didn't really exist before. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Erica, talk about the humanitarian impact of sanctions. You worked in the context of a few different countries, Iran, Syria, North Korea, Cuba, and some others who've been under sanctions for years. Talk about how um, these sanctions have impacts on the humanitarian situation on the ground in, in some of these countries, including Iran. Sure. Well, the first thing to note is that sanctions um, employed today, and that's to say targeted sanctions, shouldn't necessarily have a humanitarian impact because, of course, they've been designed uh, in order to uh, exert uh, pressure or constrain access to resources and so on on individuals and specific companies. So with bearing that in mind, there's a number of factors in recent sanctions practice that that, um, are more problematic, however. So the first is the fact that there are various overlapping sanctions regimes in place, uh, the UN, the US, and a number of other countries uh, on various countries around the world. The second is that they've become a lot broader to cover financial and energy sectors, for example, and not just limited to the more traditional asset freezes and travel bans and arms embargoes. And then the next problem is this phenomenon of financial sector de-risking and over-compliance, which means companies and other types of organisations around the world are increasingly fearful of potential ramifications of falling foul of US sanctions in particular, but also others that are in place. And then a final consideration, which is quite an important one, is that humanitarian actors who um, play a role in bringing essential goods to certain countries or helping to um, assist in emergency situations uh, have had hindered access to certain countries, again, for problems relating to overcompliance. And this is the case in Iran, particularly during the pandemic, but also in its ability to um, support its large number of refugees and internally displaced people who have come from other countries around the region. Or it's also problematic for those seeking to provide vaccines and medicines and so on in relation to other problems like earthquakes and so on. So we have a situation whereby various UN agencies, but also various international NGOs, find it increasingly difficult to operate in a country like Iran because they they face a number of bureaucratic and administrative and financial hurdles in doing so. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about uh, that a little more because we constantly hear, especially from U.S. officials, that there are exemptions to sanctions, that food, medicine, uh, humanitarian items are not sanctioned and that basically sort of a denial of humanitarian impacts of sanctions. Talk about that. How is it that despite the exemptions that are carved in the law on paper for humanitarian um, issues, it hasn't been as helpful, especially in the past year, but even in years leading up to the coronavirus. You're absolutely right. So basically all sanctions regimes that are in place, whether they're imposed by the United Nations or whether they're put in place by the US, uh, the European Union or other countries around the world, they all contain exemptions or exceptions of some kind that mean that in theory, the trade of essential goods, so medicines, vaccines, food, and so on, should uh, be able to continue. But in reality, as I mentioned already, the, the, in, the, the complexity of the sanctions that are in place mean that many of the companies that would 
be otherwise trading with a country like Iran, uh, is simply finds it too confusing or just simply too risky that they voluntarily withdraw from trade with a with a given country like Iran. So what you get is, in theory, uh, activities are allowed and humanitarian trade should be able to continue. But on, but the reality is that uh, it's actually incredibly different difficult. And one of the one of the crucial problems here is the reluctance of banks and other financial sector organizations that that simply don't want to be part of these this trade so they're not willing to service financial transactions and that in itself causes an enormous uh, problem so it's a kind of knock-on effect of the sanctions and it's a and it doesn't just apply to Iran it's a global problem and it's been seen to have got worse in recent years mm-hmm. and we know in the case of Iran at least that when Donald Trump decided to pull out of the nuclear deal and reimpose these economic sanctions on Iran, the Europeans tried to find a solution, which is called now the INSTEX, this special financial mechanism for doing, for basically helping go around these U.S. um, limitations and help Iran acquire some items. There's also a Swiss humanitarian channel that was set up with, with the Americans. Why hasn't that um, filled this gap that we're talking about? And um, how effective have these two channels been? Well, they're they're actually relatively different mechanisms. So that's the first point to consider. So Instex Mm -hmm. essentially is a kind of barter system whereby no money is actually transferring between Europe and Iran. So if you imagine, for example, um, two, I don't know, agricultural companies in Europe they would pay each other for a certain amount of goods and the same kind of uh, level of transaction would happen in Iran. So that's the principle of it. In effect, though, of course, it's it's hindered, first of all, by political commitment. Secondly, it's still hindered by the de-risking problem. So even though this mechanism in place, uh, companies around Europe and also further afield are still reluctant to engage with it because they, they continue to fear... US sanctions. And of course, this isn't surprising because some of the fines that have been levied against um, North American and European banks have entered into the billions of dollars. So you can really understand why there is this reluctance nowadays. Um, Nevertheless, I would say with Instex, it's been an important um, symbolic move on the part of European companies to uh, demonstrate continued dedication to the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. And um, it, it, it's, it's actually rather a big symbolic act as well, because it, it, it represents an important divergence away from the policies uh, enacted under the Trump administration. And so I think that's a really important point to keep in mind. If we turn to the Swiss humanitarian trade agreement, that's slightly different because it's, um, it's, it's basically um, a protected way of transactions taking place from Swiss-based companies, particularly relating to pharmaceutical trade, to Iran, using uh, an agreement with the US whereby uh, a certain number of companies are authorised to engage in certain types of transactions. One of the problems uh, I'm aware of with this that's been cited is that a lot of information uh, has to be provided to the US. So that has left uh, certain parties rather nervous. Um, 
again, for future ramifications of sanctions, perhaps. And also it's, it's limited, of course, to Swiss companies. It's not a global solution. But when it comes down to it, I think it, they're, they're promising, even though they're in their infancy, because uh, something needs to happen. There's, it, it, there needs to be basically change that takes place along the chain from policy alterations starting at the source of the problem all the way to the end, which is basically how to get money through into a country like Iran. So every type of um, solution here is going to be useful in playing a small part potentially in addressing what is a, a really major problem. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about um, solutions, possible solutions. How can, is there any solution when you're talking about um, the the inherent basically problems in the policy and then what we see as overcompliance uh, when it comes to companies and banks, uh, would there be a solution as far as um, modifying in the law or is it is it just a lifting of of certain economic sanctions that could open the door? I think that the the potential solutions could happen on a whole load of different levels. So you can begin with the idea that the sanctions that are put in place need to be designed uh, more judiciously and uh, more strategically. Um, for example, most sanctions regimes that are in place today, um, imposed by the US, but also the UN, the EU and others, they're really quite difficult to lift or to um, ease. And of course, mm. when we think about sanctions, we need to think about the carrot and stick approach. There needs to be incentives as well as something, you know, kind of coercive side to it. And so if if basically the the the, the overall strategy of the sanctions in terms of their lifting hasn't been carefully thought out or even articulated, then there's a problem there because it removes the incentive on the side of the target to adhere to the sanctions in any way. So the next point I'd make about solutions is that there are there are various uh, changes that could be made within different types of sanctions regimes. So in the work I've done elsewhere on Syria, uh, Venezuela, and more generally in terms of the humanitarian ramifications of sanctions, what we see is that um, the different the different um, stakeholders involved in this problem don't tend to interact with each other very much and they don't speak the same language. So initiatives that bring different uh, parties together, this includes the banks, uh, the the various companies that are involved in the supply chains of essential goods, so not just medical and food companies, but also insurance companies, shipping, uh, money transfer organisations and so on. Um, Then there's also the regulators, the donors, the humanitarian community, tech providers. So there's so many different parties that can play a role in trying to find a solution to the problem of overcompliance and and thus alleviating some of the humanitarian impacts of the sanctions. Um, But they, they don't tend to come together. So that's a really important point, as is raising awareness and a kind of training across the board as well to have a keener um, understanding of what is required and how best to go about adhering to the sanctions. Um, And then you come down to some of the more innovative solutions, which is um, things like how how can we find new ways of getting money into countries when there are really not many banking channels left? Um, If I could give the case, uh, the example of Syria, for example, around Mm -hmm. four years ago, there were something like 30 different correspondent banking channels into the country. 
Um, this is basically when a, a payment is made from somewhere in Europe, for example, into a country like Syria, it tends to go through a chain of maybe two or three other banks, perhaps regional banks like in Lebanon or Jordan or in the Gulf before ending up in Syria. And because of de-risking and the fear of sanctions and other risks, these channels have got smaller and smaller and smaller. So when we came to look at the problem last year, there were only four left. And I think at some point this year, there probably won't be any left. And this is very much the problem in North Korea as well, where even the UN, uh, World Health Organization and so on, are not able to pay their staff. And so the only ways left of bringing money into the country are very limited. Their remittances, their hawala, so informal remittance channels, and uh, also money transfer organizations with very high transfer fees. So more innovative thinking needs to be uh, done on how we can how we can provide sticking plaster solutions as well to this problem um, at a time where policy change may be less likely. Right here in the U.S., we have the Trump administration leaving office soon. There's a new administration coming, and in the past four years, the policy on Iran has been this policy of maximum pressure, the piling on of economic sanctions. But in essence, it hasn't had much success. The Secretary of State Pompeo has laid out these 12 conditions for Iran, none of which have been met. And it seems like none of the stated goals of the Trump administration were achieved, despite this campaign of maximum pressure and you know as as much sanctions as possible piled on on Iran talk about that the uh, the effectiveness of sanctions as a foreign policy tool and we know it's a very popular foreign policy tool nowadays in around the world but how effective are such broad economic sanctions imposed on a country when it comes to foreign policy and achieving uh, the goals or, as you were mentioning, the carrot and stick path? Sure. Well, it's a really good question because when it comes to talking about are sanctions effective, this is something that um, it kind of makes um, sanction scholars take a deep breath and have a big sigh because um, what you see is a big dichotomy uh, between the way in which politicians, and particularly those in the US, envisage and talk about sanctions, and what um, we as experts of sanctions know to be the case in terms of how they exert an impact. So the first caveat, I should say, is that sanctions, of course, don't operate in isolation. They're only as good as the way in which they're combined with other tools of foreign policy, and this could be diplomacy, um, it could be trade, it could be mediation, uh, conflict resolution, you know, in, 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 in cases where there is conflict on the ground um, and many other areas. And so it needs to be planned very strategically. But at the same time, it's very, very hard to pinpoint what impacts the sanctions actually have over and above anything else going on in the country. And this is made it all the more difficult to work out in contexts of dire humanitarian crises and armed conflict and so on, because it, you know, it, it, there's basically no access to data on the ground, and uh, there are so many things going on that exacerbate the the well-being of ordinary civilians. So that's one um, that's one caveat I would make first of all. The second is that there are there have been a number of really important studies over the past uh, few decades which seek to assess effectiveness of sanctions, and 
uh, in spite of, of, of um, these, these um, challenges in, in proving cause and effect. And what we see is that sanctions that um, are approaching comprehensive measures, so that's to say rather than the more targeted or smart sanctions we've had in the last two decades, those measures that are more like the embargoes that we saw back in the 1990s against the likes of Iraq and Cuba and Haiti and the former Yugoslavia, those uh, have had, had demonstrable impacts on civilians. And they also cause a huge number of different bureaucratic burdens that can have humanitarian impacts as well. Now, the next point is that um, the same kind of problem occurs when we look at multiple sanctions regimes, because we simply have no way of assessing um, what the cumulative impacts are. So the US could have a number of stated um, policy aims associated with its sanctions. But if the, U the EU and a number of other countries or regional organisations also employ their own sets of measures, this accentuates the impacts. And a final point here is that recent studies have shown that the broader the sanctions that are in place, the less effective they are. So not to say um, that they shouldn't be relatively broad, but if they are approaching a full-blown embargo on a country, so comprehensive sanctions on a country, they become ineffective. And actually, the same is actually true of um, only a very small amount of sanctions on a particular target. So if you only had an arms embargo, for example, that would be ineffective. But if it's combined with, say, asset freezes and travel bans and perhaps some minor um, sectoral sanctions, then this could be more effective. So this now brings me on to the maximum pressure campaign, which is very interesting for me as somebody who has looked at sanctions for a, a long time and over the decades that they've been implemented. Because it may come as a surprise to you, but it was almost 70 years ago that a Scandinavian scholar termed the phrase naive uh, naive theory on sanctions or a naive approach on sanctions. And this, mm -hmm. this related to the type of approach whereby you impose really crippling sanctions on a country with the aim of you know, causing maximum amount of pressure and destruction in order to get some kind of um, political gain. And back in the 1980s, the, the term was coined, um, civilian pain does not equate to political gain. And this is very mm. much the kind of rationale behind um, President Trump's uh, maximum pressure campaign, or I should say uh, former President Trump's uh, maximum pressure campaign as of tomorrow. Um, so it's from those of us who have looked at it from the outside, the maximum pressure campaign was never going to work. It was never going to help the US achieve its stated foreign policy aims that were integral to the sanctions in place because those types of measures uh, don't work and they also can be counterproductive and have long-term ramifications for, for ordinary people in living in, in a country that's subject to these these measures. Mm -hmm. Is We've heard some experts even um, say that it seems like the cruelty of these sanctions under maximum pressure seems to have been the point. But... We know, for example, that under the Obama administration, a combination of sanctions and pressure, but also, as you said, diplomacy or the carrot and stick did lead to successful negotiations and eventually a nuclear deal. So talk about that, the cases of success and how effective, in your opinion, are sanctions when they're set up and designed in that kind of a format and basically how much 
um, of that of that situation, you can contribute to to such economic sanctions. Yeah, I would say that um, sanctions can be useful in certain contexts. Um, when we when we look at them across the board, and when the studies that I mentioned already that that try to look into effectiveness. Um, they're actually only effective in a small percentage of cases, so something between about 10 and 30%. And what we also tend to look at is we break it down into different types of objectives. So you could say sanctions are intended to coerce a change of behaviour. They're also intended to constrain a target in accessing resources or financing. And they're also intended to signal certain things, so disapproval of certain actions or even signal to a domestic audience like in the US that the the particular the government at the time is doing something about a big problem or getting out there in front on the global stage. So if you think about it in like this in a more nuanced way, you can then see that you can talk about effectiveness according to these different um, areas. And instead, what you often see in the press is a more black and white understanding uh you know, about regime change or something that isn't necessarily part of the stated foreign policy aims. So that brings me around to your question on um, the JCPOA and um, what Barack Obama achieved during that time, um, working together with the um, P5 plus one um, during the, the nuclear talks. I would say that again, with the caveat that it's it's really difficult to know the exact role played by sanctions, I would say that it was a very good case of how sanctions were closely interlinked with other areas of diplomacy. And also the action and discussions were going on within the UN, but with also outside of the UN. So a lot of the um, diplomacy and the talks were, of course, happening with France, Germany, the UK, uh, Russia, China, the US, uh, later the EU and Iran. And then once an agreement was forged in that forum... Uh, it was then taken to the UN and I think it represents a really interesting kind of informal governance going on that kind of guided the multilateral process. So I think this is this is something that we really need to keep um, in mind is close working of allies uh, and a strategic forward thinking on how sanctions can best be uh, laced together with other tools of influence such as diplomacy. Mm. And going back to the coronavirus and the current pandemic, we know that the Iranian government has requested a loan of $5 billion from the IMF, which they're entitled to request. And the, the U.S. government has tried to block that loan. It hasn't been given to Iran yet. And one of the solutions that was put forth by Iranian officials was for this loan to be paid into INSTEX, the mechanism that we were talking about. Um, talk about that, what you think, if you think that's that's something that's even possible and if it's a good solution for sort of um, getting this money or the resource into Iran through that European mechanism while also basically opening the door for Iran to have better chances to deal with this pandemic. I'd say first and foremost, the the priority needs to be to get the money to Iran Um the withholding of funds or blocking of funds is simply unacceptable in the current climate, of course, because with this pandemic, it's not just a case now of um, localising the impacts of, of sanctions, for example, that only affects a certain country or a certain region. 
what the what the pandemic is rapidly showing us is that if you can't tackle the breakout of the virus in one part of the world, it will continue to represent a major problem in the rest of the world, of course. Um, it will only come back to bite the US or if, if a way isn't found to um, overcome some of these problems of either direct political actions that hinder access to, to relevant funds or if the funds don't come through through um, overcompliance. And I know for a fact that in some of the um, recent uh, events regarding payments for the vaccine in Iran, it wasn't necessarily the US that was blocking it. It was the reluctance of banks to um, service the payment, for example. So and I think with the election of Joe Biden, this week is a very important week, of course. Uh, what is absolutely vital is for not only um, a return to global governance processes that the Trump administration um, withdrew from, including the JCPOA, but also um, a closer working with allies, of course. And this, this is really key in the current climate with regard to the, the pandemic in Iran, because um, it will require close working between the US and, and European companies, um, where, of course, many of the um, pharmaceutical companies are based uh, in order for Iran to be able to adequately vaccinate its population and continue to tackle those suffering, you know, the pan pandemic as it is um, today in the country. Mm. And you mentioned the Biden administration starting work this week here in Washington and the president-elect himself and his top advisors have promised to restart diplomacy with Iran, basically return to the JCPOA and to continue uh, diplomacy in other areas just beyond the nuclear deal. But you also mentioned how it's not very easy um, and it's challenging to lift sanctions that have been imposed in the past few years uh, under the Trump administration. What is the path forward? What does it look for the incoming administration as far as a return back to the JCPOA, which from the Iranian perspective is a lifting or easing of sanctions. How do you think the Biden administration can unfold this reenactment of diplomacy and the continuation of talks with Iran when it comes to this issue of sanctions? It's a really fascinating question because all eyes are going to be on um, the Biden administration in the next few weeks. And of course, it's a really crucial window, political window as well, in terms of um, getting the deal back on the table. I wouldn't like to speculate too much about what is going to happen in the US, of course, um, particularly as I'm not um, based there, not from there. But what I would say is what I'm picking up is that there's a great deal of um, interest in moving away, of course, from many of the Trump policies. And I think this will start most likely with the maximum pressure campaign and, of course, um, with the JCPOA. So I think on that front, we're likely to look at um, a number of quite dramatic um, changes on that front. At the same time, we also have to remember that the US has for a very long time been a far more aggressive enforcer of sanctions than the EU or than any other country or organisation around the world. So I would also exercise a, uh, exercise a word of caution that while a number of policies may be reversed quite visibly in the early stages, we may also see that not everything will change so dramatically in the more day-to-day -day functioning of many of the sanctions. Because 
a lot of the impact of the US sanctions is, is the overcompliance and it's kind of the uncertainty among for example the private sector in whether or not they could return to the to um trading with Iran that is a kind of knock-on effect from these um sanctions that it's not entirely sure whether this will go away in the immediate future mm-hmm. and uh now that we see the Biden administration will be moving away to some extent from these broad economic sanctions or at least sanctions with no goal really that were imposed by the Trump administration. You also talked about how um, certain sanctions can be effective and there's also different kinds of sanctions. If you can do like a little bit of a breakdown of these different types of sanctions and what you think can work in certain situations when it comes to using sanctions as a foreign policy tool. What we need to remember is that there are there are loads of different kinds of sanctions and a good place to start is that there are three types I guess um that we could keep in mind in terms of how they're implemented. The first is the sanctions imposed by the UN that all UN member states are obliged to enact. The second are supplementary sanctions which are imposed unilaterally or autonomously by a um, number of con- countries and regional organizations around the world. And then the third category are the fully autonomous or unilateral sanctions that are basically imposed outside of the UN framework. And these are often relating to some of the more contentious uh, security and foreign policy challenges around the world. So that's one consideration. And then the next is how targeted they are. Now, as you know, there was a big outcry about the humanitarian impacts of sanctions um, back in the 1980s and 90s. And that led to a huge shift in the way in which pretty much all um, sanctioning powers used the measures going forward. And they became much more targeted against individuals and companies as a way of trying to reduce their impact on ordinary people. So um, this could be, as I mentioned before, travel bans, asset freezes. It could be embargoes on weapons or on tools of surveillance, for example, arms embargoes. Um, It could also extend to diplomatic bans of different kinds. Back in the day, there used to be sporting uh, sanctions, which are not so common nowadays. So there's lots of different types. But what we see with the Iranian case was it was an example of where a number of actors, so including the EU, started to use far broader measures. So with the case of the EU, of course, the the sanctions on Iran since around 2012 also covered the Iranian central bank and vast parts of the oil, oil, the energy sector. And this is a slightly more problematic because it's moving away from this strong dedication to targeted measures and starting to enter into a bit more of a grey area um, that you could question whether the humanitarian impacts are quite so limited as they should be. So I would say that and in the case of Iran, of course, you also have sanctions imposed for a variety of different purposes. And that's really important to keep in mind as well. So some are relating to the nuclear developments, others are relating to human rights, and there are a number of others in place. So what's important when we think about the sanctions as well is that we don't mix them all up because actually they're actually treated very differently and the aims and the requirements for each each ones are, are rather different as well. So um, as you'll see, it's very complicated. There's, there's, there's a huge layering of them and it really permeates 
to to all sectors and all types of activities, I guess, in a country. You know, in, in, in the case of Iran, it also can impact access to the internet or to educational materials or to software required for computers. It can also impact on the ability of scientists or academics to participate in conferences or access the latest uh, research in journals. So again, when we're thinking about the the election of the Biden administration now, I think that's another really important consideration is is the the kind of unseen and invisible ramifications of the sanctions that have various unintended consequences that aren't necessarily factored in to the planning stages. Well, on that note, Erica, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Erica Moret, a senior researcher at the Center for Global Governance and a visiting lecturer at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Also, please consider supporting the Iran Podcast with a small monthly donation. You can go on our website on Anchor and click on support. Until next time, goodbye.